Amen? Awesome. Let's look at James here. Some people brought your Bible. But we're, uh, we're in James 5. Okay? In, in, I, I've been warning us, trying to warn us every week. Okay? James doesn't mince words. He doesn't hold back. He's uh, the Proverbs of the New Testament. He's brutally honest. Uh, and uh, again, if you've been here for, for, for really chapter, you know, chapter two and for sure chapter three and for sure chapter four, uh, you maybe have felt like uh, you've been coming and just getting hit by a cricket bat every, every step of the way. Because James is, you know, I mean, kind of he's, he's digging deeper and deeper into our soul and, and forcing us to understand, uh, you know, that, that, that what's inside of us. Okay. Uh, th- this is kind of the last of those sections. Okay, so after today, uh, after today, as we look at here, the, the, the beginning uh, of chapter five, he, James kind of recaps and ties things together and moves on to more pleasant things. Uh, but, but this is probably the most severe part of James. Right? Uh, and again, it's a confronting, confronting text. Uh, and that's where we're going to watch a movie to help us digest it better. Amen. Uh, so if we brought a Bible, if not, you can have phenomenal eyesight and you can look at it up on the screen. All right, so let's start there, verse 1, as James uh, begins. Now listen. All right, now, every other time he said, now listen, is not pleasant. Okay, so that's a, that, should, that should clue us in here. Uh, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, Wait, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Do not, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged the judge is standing at the door. Scary, right? Scary. And James here is speaking, uh, uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, especially a lot of the minor prophets or the Book of the Twelve, uh, the shorter prophetic books in the Old Testament, James is speaking the, their language. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the phrase of, of uh, you know, the corrosion and the rust, uh, not just on the possessions, but ourselves, right? Again, it's, it's strong language, and it's a strong rebuke, uh, and it's severe. Uh, it, it's so severe that, that a lot of commentary, com, com, commentators uh, wrestle with who is James even talking to? Is he talking to Christians? Right? Because he doesn't use his familiar uh, starting line of, hey, my brothers and sisters. Throughout James, he's always calling them, hey, my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters. Here he just starts, you rich people. Right? Now the reality is he's talking to the people that would have heard the letter, which would have been the church. You know, and he, he, he's got some strong, strong warnings for them. Uh, you know, and so let, let's have a prayer here, and then we'll look at a, a couple, uh, a couple points, and as promised, we'll watch a little movie as well. All right, let's let's pray. Uh, Father, we we pray you help us, God. 
We know that the words here from, from James are, are, are strong and severe. That the warnings that, that he uh, volleys at us, God, are ones that we need to take to heart, God. We pray you help us, God. Help us to you know, resist the temptation to, to block uh, these words, God. To apply them to, to someone else, but rather not to ourselves, God. We pray you help us, God. Help us to see ourselves clearly, God. Help us to see uh, the urgency at hand in learning to be good stewards of, of what you've entrusted to us, God. And we pray, God, that, that we can make decisions here and now, God, to uh, learn how to, to handle the wealth you've entrusted to each one of us, God, in a way that ultimately brings you glory and, 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 and enables us, God, to, to stand firm until the end, God. Again, we, we love you. We ask you to be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So let, let's look here. Again, like I said, very strong. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't weasel away from it. But, but James, uh, as any other Bible writer, when they say strong things, the aim is to help. Okay? And, and we see that. You know, even when he uses that in, in verse 1, he talks about weep and wail. That's a call to repentance. So he, he has hope. Even though things are, are, are bleak, uh, and in his mind, you know, needing strong language, there's still hope. There, there's a call to, to repentance. And so let's look at a couple things. You know, one, uh, first and foremost, why? Why this, uh, this woe to the wealthy? Uh, again, similar language, if you're familiar with the New Testament, like Matthew 23, uh, where Jesus talks about woe, kind of woe to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, challenging religious people, uh, us included in that. It's similar language here. And so why? Why does James have such strong things to say uh, to, to, to the rich disciples there? Uh, and secondly, uh, we'll, we'll look at, if my slide's right, how, how do we redeem these riches, right? How do we redeem? How do we take what, what, what's been given to us and use it in a way uh, that glorifies God? Amen? And so we'll look at those two, two here pretty in-depthly. You know, first and foremost, you know, what did well, why, right? Okay, for, before we even dive in to understand, look, there, there is no sin in being rich, okay? No, there's not... Being rich is not in and of, its, uh, in and of itself uh, a sin. But the Bible, like this passage in James and another one in 1 Timothy 6, which I'll read to you here in a second, they have very strong warnings attached to it. All right? 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 to 10, you know, Paul writes, Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. All right? Money in and of itself is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Right? Uh, but, but Paul is very upfront with Timothy that, that the desire to gain more of it causes many people to lose the path they're meant to be walking on. Causes many disciples, many people who have, who have made Jesus Lord, have been baptized for the forgiveness of sins and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, causes them to wander, right, from the faith and pierce themselves, as he says, with, with many, many griefs, you know. And so, so why, you know, in James' mind, well, what is evidence of, 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 of even who is the wealthy, right? And who, who, who are the ones that have wealth? You know, here he, he talks about hoarding wealth, which is an interesting phrase, you know. We have... Uh, even TV shows now on hoarding, right? Where we just have so much stuff. Uh, the, the, the numbers behind uh, the, the, the industry of additional storage places, because you've run out of storage in your house, that industry in the last 20 years has just grown exponentially. 
right, as we accumulate more and more, you know. And so James here is, is talking about hoarding, right? The Bible is not anti-saving, okay? Proverbs 6, you can go there and read that on your own time, uh, where God says, hey, look at the ant. The ant figures out how to save for the future. Don't be lazy, but be like the ant, okay? God is not anti-saving. He doesn't, he's not telling you to liquidate your superannuation. Uh, he, that's not what he's talking about. Saving for the future is wise and prudent. But here he's talking about hoarding, amassing more and more. Not just saving for the future in the sense of, of, of let me make sure uh, I'll be able to survive and not be dependent on others, which the Bible has very strong things to say about, but this idea of amassing so much that the third, you know, second and third things we're going to talk about here under, uh, under this idea of evidence for it, which is self-indulgence and living in luxury, so that that can potentially uh, exponentially continue on. Right, and that's, that's what he's driving at with hoarding. And many people read that and they go, okay, hoarding or saving, well, how do you know the line? Well, the Bible never spells it out. The Bible never gives us a clear line. Right? The Bible's written to all people across all time, different cultures, uh, and, and we've got to understand uh, and, and, and be open to having people speak truth into our life to help us to grasp where is this line. Yeah. Am, I, am I saving uh, in, a wise, in a way that's wise and prudent, or am I just trying to hoard here? More and more for myself. All right? The second thing he talks about here in our text is, is that this uh, desire to hoard wealth leads to us uh, beginning to, to, to use and abuse others. You know, he talks about you, you know, you're, you're skimming your workers. You're not paying them for the work they've done. Again, because what's, what's your mentality? More and more. More and more. Not, not helping out those who, who should be helped. Not giving back to those who have given to you. But again, it's this idea of stepping on others for personal gain, right? And, and this doesn't mean that, that you have to be a wealthy land order owner to fall into James' mentality of who's rich, okay? He's just saying, look, it's this principle of using people for greater personal gain, abusing people in order to gain more for self, you know? And the last thing he says here. Uh, which, you know, is those of us living here in the first world should scare us. As he says, they live lives of luxury and self-indulgence. And luxury is a hard one, okay? Anytime we talk about wealth and money, it's always challenging because as Jesus says, look, wealth has a blinding effect. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. You know, but, but we think luxury, and in, in, in most of the time when we hear that, we immediately think of someone who has more than we have. Right? And we define them as being living in luxury. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Anytime we read Bible passages and our gut instinct, our initial reaction is application to someone else, we are, we are heading into dangerous grounds. Apply first and foremost to self. You know, and again, how do you define that? How do you define what's luxury? You know, many, many scholars over the years, biblical scholars have talked about, look, the, this idea is, is, is my standard of living. Does it go up along with my income? You know, as everyone ages and as you go from, from uh, uneducated, uh, your first job working at Macca's uh, to, to 25 years at the same company and, 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 and wildly successful, w what happens to your standard of living along the way? It typically does. And as we do that, we end up more and more in luxury. Right? More and more easy, you know, easier and easier to indulge self, right? 
and our lives get more complicated and we add things on, you know, and, and, and there's a challenge in terms of the Bible's understanding of how, how we steward wealth is to be better stewards and not, not go up that similar path that the world goes up. To not allow our standard of living to continue to increase just as our income increases, right? But learning to be content, as Paul says, with, with nothing or with something, right? And Paul, at times, you know, life, life was cushy for Paul. And then other times for Paul, Paul, life was very challenging. But he learned the secret of contentment, right? Being content with the basics. And again, it's a challenging, challenging thing, you know? We've got to, again, this is an area we've got to get help. We've got to get input in of, hey, am I, am I, am I falling into the category of living luxurious uh, life and, and, and becoming self-indulgent? You know, now, now why? Why is James uh, so strong against... Uh, the evidence of this, you know, this dangerous area of becoming rich or becoming wealthy, you know, and, and he uses two very powerful pictures here, that of rotting and, and, and corrosion. Rot, you know, moss eating and consuming your clothing, your precious metals uh, rusting away, you know, and uh, the, the language which, with, which he, you know, look, look again here at the, at the language here. He says, verse 2, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now, James is doing a very interesting thing here. He's talking about uh, moth and, and, and rust going after objects of, of possession. But there at the end, what does he do? He says that corrosion then spreads to our very selves. You've got to think about that. Because James here is pointing out, here's why this is serious. You're going to lose your possessions. That's a guarantee. Your most prized possessions, one day they're going to burn. All right? One day you're going, to, you're going to die, and your most prized possessions are going to go to somebody else who hasn't worked for it, and it's now theirs. All right? But he's saying, here's the danger. Here's why he is saying these strong things. Because it's not just your possessions that are a danger. That's actually a guarantee. That's going to happen. But your very self can end up corroding from the inside. Your very soul. You know, I was working on this text, and I was talking to Michelle about it. Michelle got online and, and, and found this phenomenal Washington Post uh, newspaper article about wealth. All right? Secular newspaper. Challenging almost in the same language as James regarding wealth and how it corrodes us. You know, and the writer of that, that article says, look, we used to think about having vast sums of money was bad, and in particular, bad for you. That it harmed your character, warped your behavior, and corrupted your soul. We thought the rich were different and, the, and different for the worse. Today, however, we seem less confident of this. We seem to view wealth as simply good or neutral and chalk up the failures of individual wealthy people to their own personal flaws, not their riches. Those who are rich, we seem to think, are not in any more danger than the rest of us. Compare how old movies preach to folk Wisdom of wealth's morally calamitous effects of how contemporary movies portray wealth. For example, Mr. Potter in, in It's a Wonderful Life, if you're familiar with that. Uh, he's, I think, number, number three on you know, the, the worst villains list of movies. Uh, you know, versus Tony Stark and how they're portrayed. Right? The, and, and the writer is saying, look, even not, not even talking religiously at this point. The world used to understand that there was incredible danger in wealth, right? And they used to recognize the innate dangers that come with it. 
But now, we seem, to, we seem to think that any of the problems that do emerge that usually does tend to come from, you know, that corrosiveness of character that comes with great wealth, he says, we, we now attribute that just to the flaws in a person. Instead of understanding that that wealth in and of itself is potentially dangerous, right? And amassing more of it is, is very, very dangerous. And, and he goes on to talk about how, how almost every great religious thinker or philosophical thinker, from, from, from Buddha to, to Plato uh, to obviously Christian writers and even Muslim writers, all cry out for the same thing of, hey, be careful. Be careful. Be careful of gaining and amassing wealth because it will not just become corrupted in and of itself and corroded, it will also corrupt and corrode your soul. Right? And he, he adds to that, he says, now study after study done by psycho psychologists have shown the same. Right? Look, at, look at this. Okay? Here's a list of, I don't even know how many, there's a lot of them. All right? But this is all from this article, and I'll post a link up on Facebook. You can have to read yourself. Right? He says, look, the rich, the wealthy are more likely to shoplift and cheat. Right? More likely to shoplift and cheat. Right? More likely to cheat on their spouse and to engage in drunkenness. More likely to take candy that is meant for children. Statistically, those who drive Mercedes and Lexuses, which most of the world would con, you know, consider uh, luxury cars, rather than people who drive Hondas or Fords, study after study have shown that those who drive more expensive cars tend to run through more stop signs and cut off more people. The rich, time and time again, are the worst tax evaders. They give proportionally way less to charity. They, significantly exhibit, they exhibit significantly less compassion and empathy towards people that are suffering. Right? They're typically worse off at even reading people's emotions and are more likely to be disengaged in their relationships rather than interacting with the people uh, that they are, they are with. They tend to be more, listen to this one, right? again, statistically, studies have shown they're more competitive and impulsive and reckless than medically diagnosed psychopaths. All right? We're not done yet. We're halfway through the list. All right? <laughs> he said, the writer says, some studies go as far to suggest simply being around people of great wealth will make you less willing to share with others. All right? Which again, this idea that it doesn't just poison one, it tends to spread and affect others. Right? Uh, they tend to be less content based on the more they have. They tend to believe that, that the people that have different financial destinies are simply because of who they essentially are rather than just the opportunities they've gotten. Right? So it's not just I'm wealthy because, you know, kind of right place, right time, right opportunity, and I seized it, but I'm wealthy because I'm a better person. I don't just have more money. I am a better person. Right? And that begins to distort even our characters and our sense of, 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 uh, of, of worth. It goes on to say that the rich are more susceptible to loneliness, and some statistics are showing more and more that they tend to be more prone to suicide. All right. Again, even this is Washington Post, guys. Not a religious newspaper. The writer is not a religious writer. Saying essentially the same thing. Look, be careful. And again, this is not for everyone out there, guys. This is not for, for, for all those people you may think in your mind, oh, they have, they have, they have, they have. No, no, no. James is saying, hey. We need to understand this. All right? Again, living in a place like Australia, man, we're blessed. We're blessed. Way more than we need. And we've got to be sober about this. All right? James goes on, right? Woe to the wealthy. Hopefully you understand why he's so strong. You know, but he's not just negative, right? There's hints throughout this text, okay, 
of how do we redeem it? You know, almost as, you know, almost every time, really, if you survey a lot of the Bible passages about wealth, almost every time the Bible talks about wealth or mammon or money uh, or riches, it almost always tries to frame it within the lens of the next life. Almost always. I mean, we read nine verses here out of chapter five. And, and look how many times James is, is trying to help these people he's challenging and warning to think not about the here and the now, but of the future. But not just even of the future, but he speaks of the future as if it is in the present. All right? Did you notice that? You know, he says there, chapter 5, uh, you know, that, that, that misery is coming on you. Okay, that's future tense. But then he says, your wealth has rotted. Past tense. So James is saying, look, we, we need to be a people so consumed in some sense or so, so fixated on the next life that it, that it penetrates into our present how we view things in this life. Right? We've got to see it from it. Again, all the wealth is rotted. Moss have eaten. Gold and silver are corroded. I mean, their, their corrosion will testify against you. Verse 3 talks about in the last days. Verse 7, he reminds them of the Lord's coming. Verse 80 warns them the Lord's coming is near. In verse 9, he closes off that section saying, hey, the judge is standing at the door. And this isn't even the first time he's talked about wealth. If you look at what he talks about there in, 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 in chapter 1 about wealth, it's the same language. This idea of, of, of we need to, if we're going to redeem riches, if we're going to learn to be more effective stewards of what we have here and now, we must think more about the future. And not the future of, uh, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years, or 30 years from now, but how about 1,000 years from now? How about learning to, to steward our wealth, not just thinking really in, you know, in the scale of eternity in the short term, this life, but in the ultimate long term. I mean, oftentimes, really, if you want to frame it this way, hoarding is too nearsighted. It's actually too much thinking about here and now. We need to think beyond that and into the next life. You know, and in keeping our eyes on eternity, again, like I said, is all, all these famous passages on wealth and how we steward them all have this rooted in it. You know, we went through the Gospel of Matthew and we studied the Sermon on the Mount and we looked at what Jesus says there in, 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 in Matthew 6 about how, uh, you know, you can't love both God and money. You got to choose one because you can't love both. Right? His appeal there is not to not be a treasure hunter. It's to be a treasure hunter for the next life. Don't just store up treasures on, on, on earth, but store up treasures eternally. You know, in Luke 12, when he tells a parable to, to the rich, a rich fool, uh, you know, a guy whose business does so well that he tears down his barns and builds bigger barns, and then he gets to a point which most people try to live their life to get to, which is, hey, I can just relax and eat, drink, and be merry. In the parable, Jesus comes to him and says, man, you're, you're a fool. Who's going to get what you, you know, your life is going to be demanded from you tonight, and who's going to get what you have? He says, this is how it's going to be with anyone who's rich towards people, but not rich towards God. We have this desire, we have this drive to gain treasure, and Jesus says, hey, take that drive and, and, and scale it out a thousand years. Make sure it's not just about here and now, but into eternity. Amen? You guys with me? Yeah. Right? Now, now, now to, help us, to help us grasp this, okay? I don't know if you've read a lot of C.S. Lewis uh, one of C.S. Lewis's lesser-known essays, uh, you know, tackles this idea. 
right, of what lays ahead in the future. And so we're going to watch uh, a guy read it. So it's only about 12 minutes long. But as he does it, he, he draws pictures for us to help us. Okay? Right? So it's doodling C.S. Lewis's writing. Jesus talking about wealth and the dangers of hoarding and living a life of self-centeredness and using wealth uh, and our resources uh, to betterment of self, he throws out this picture that's of Jesus. Right? That they've condemned and they've murdered the righteous person. Though he didn't resist you. He had the ability to. He had greater strength. But he did not. Alright? And in 2 Corinthians 8, you know, we get this with Paul in a section. He's talking about generosity. He says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That Jesus sets before us a pattern of how to live regarding wealth. And it's that of, of not self-centeredness, but of that of others-oriented, of considering of others. You know, and, and, and though he was rich, he, he, he became poor, uh, so that through his poverty, uh, we may become rich. Again, not physically rich. It's not uh, the, the, the false health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but, but riches that are true riches, that are eternal riches, so that you can find life that is really life, which is life even beyond the here and the now. And so you begin to see that, that, that you know, one of the biggest things the Bible teaches is that of, uh, of generosity as a combating to greed. Yeah. All right? uh, there's a great writer, Erwin McManus. He writes a book, uh, Uprising. Uh, and, and in that, he says, look, the, the, the opposite, many times we think this. We think the opposite of greed is poverty. But, but that's, actually, that's actually wrong because you can be enormously poor and still be consumed with greed. Right? And, he, and he goes on to write that he, he figured out with time that it's not poverty, but it's generosity. That is the opposite of greed. Right? Even Syria agrees. She says sorry. You know? and, and, and flip with me here as we close out to, to, to 1 Timothy. We read a little bit of it earlier. Chapter 6. There in verses 17 to 19, you know, Paul tells Timothy, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, and, and, and you think about Paul's, you know, writings here, uh, you know, the charge to not be arrogant, which again, we talked about that last week, and, and how this idea, you know, even we saw in the video to, to a degree, of, of our lives are, are a mist. That the end could come. You know, and, and putting our hope or our security in wealth is foolish. It's going to come to an end. It's not, it's not going to carry over into to, to the next life. So it's not worthy of conf putting our confidence in it and for sure not putting our, our, wealth, you know, our hope in it. Uh, but then he goes on and, and, he, and he talks about being rich in good deeds. Mass treasure in heaven, rich in good deeds. I don't know how that works. I don't know how God you know, signs monetary values in, in the currency of the age to come, but there is this sense of, of, of man, that, that, that we can make decisions and choices now that have effects on the next life. You know, he tells them, he charges the, the rich there, he commands them to be generous. To do the opposite of hoarding and instead give away. 
right? And to be willing to share with, with whoever. And again, this is, this is challenging for us uh, as people that have a lot of wealth, right? Uh, you know, but we, we've got to look even, you know, you know got to look even outside our, our, our current times to, to make sure we're not blinded by current sins of our generation. Right? Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about that, that uh, the, the only way to, to safeguard against living a life with obvious blind spots is to make sure you, you look at history and understand the past, right? We, we, we can very easily, uh, you know, look at past generations, for instance, like the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the founding fathers of the American democracy, right? We can very easily look at them and think, how in the world these guys have slaves? Because most of them were professing Christians, right? And it's very easy for us to look at that and, and, and judge them or, you know, look further back in, into the, you know, 14th century and, and, and think, how in the world do people follow these crazy traditions that were going on at the time, right? In terms of, you know, some of the religious denominations or the only religious denomination at the time. And we can look back on them and think, oh, how, how could they, right? But, but, but C.S. Lewis says, well, you think, how about, how about your own time? And, and writer after writer, religious and secular, say that, that, that most people are banking on 100 years, 200 years from now, people looking back on, on our time and thinking, how in the world did we not realize how enslaved by greed that we are? How in the world do we not see it? And again, it's not just the, the 1% that you're you know, perhaps thinking about. It's, it's a cultural thing. You know? And I encourage you to, 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 to read more of even history, of church history, and, and see and understand how Christians in the past managed wealth. I mean, there's scary stuff in, in church history. You know, John Wesley, who was the, the, the founder of uh, the Methodism, right? The Methodist church in, in Australia, it's Uniting Church. You know, you, you can read his journals, right? And, and he was a prolific writer. Uh, and, and uh, you know, over time, those publications, get, you know, increased his income exponentially, you know. But you can read his records and, and, and that of his followers, you know, and, and, and you know, in, in one of John, John Wesley's early years, uh, he made 30 pounds, okay? That's not very much, but back then it was, you know, he, he was okay. And he gave away three. So he made 30, gave away three. A few years later, his income had increased to 40, and he gave away 10. With time, a few more years, five years, his income had increased to 70, and he gave away 40. Towards the end of his life, because of writings and publications and things being reprinted and, and income for that, he was making 1,400 pounds a year, and he was giving a vast majority of the way and living only on 30. That's challenging. I mean, most of us, would, would our lifestyle would track as our income increases. And we've got to see there's example after example in, in Christian history and, and, and the warnings that, that Paul gives to Timothy in uh, the example of Jesus who had, who had wealth but gave it up, that the push is towards greater and greater generosity, not greater and greater self-indulgence. Right? And, and again, uncomfortable topic, challenging topic, but man, we, we need to understand that there, there's something at stake. Not just the rotting and corrosive, you know, and, 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 you know the, 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 your possession's not lasting, but, but the idea that it can corrupt your soul. 
that a pursuit that a vast majority of our world runs after can cause you to wander away from the faith. You can choose to make decisions that put your career ahead of your relationship with God. Or that may improve your lifestyle but destroys your relationships. And these are, cha- these are, these are sobering thoughts. When I lived in Melbourne, I studied with the Bible with a guy who was an executive in ANZ Bank. And, and he was, I don't know, 60 years old. And, and, and I will never forget sitting in uh, Southern Cross Station, you know, at, at the time I was like 30, 31, 32 years old. And, and I'm sitting there with a guy who, who, who's twice my age, and he is sobbing. Because he had sacrificed all of his relationships with his family, with his wife and his kids for advancement of career. And he, he tried to buy them stuff to, to gain back their love and to no avail. And there he was at 65, having what most people want and yet realizing he had nothing. And that it had rotted his soul as well. You know, and it, it did. It humbled his heart. But there's even a great tragedy in that because, man, it, it, time's up, really. Him, you know what I mean? Like choices, decisions that unable to undo in this life. You know, and I, I do hope, sincerely hope that, that that we heed James's warning, that we understand his woe to the wealth, uh, woe to amassing riches. That man, we got we got to learn that there is a great danger with wealth, and we need to learn how to steward them. But if we're going to do that, we can never lose sight of eternity. We can never, we got, we got to be thinking about the next life, right? Not in the sense of great fear, as C.S. Lewis talked about, or just crazy excitement, you know, but, but this idea of, you know what, time is, time, time is temporary, so let me make decisions to have eternal effects. Let me not invest everything in my life in things that, that, that I know will not last, but instead make decisions to invest in things that will last, right? And, and, and to never obviously lose sight of Jesus' example in that. I mean, as Jesus is being crucified, you have this, this contrast of a woman taking an incredibly uh, valuable perfume, uh, nard, uh, breaking it and anointing Jesus. And you have Judas, a man whose heart, the Bible says, was full of greed. Shocked from his vantage point, from Judas's vantage point, that was a waste. That was a waste of money. But for her viewpoint, because she understood the times, and she understood what lay ahead, and she understood God's eternal plan, that was a great investment. And, and we gotta we gotta understand what the Bible writers are even trying to warn us about is that that, that man, Jesus was sold out for 30 pieces of silver. He was sold out by a man that, that, that valued a little bit more money at the sake of his Lord. But in God's infinite wisdom, God had a greater plan of a man that, that was incredibly rich, obviously being God himself, choosing to become like us, becoming nothing, in order that we can have actually true riches. You know, and as we take communion, I encourage you to, to uh, meditate on that thought. That sacrifice, the generosity, of Jesus that wells up in incredible riches for us in this life and in the life to come. And to allow the, that, that next life that's, that, that's in the future to come into our present 
and change how we, how we use our money and our wealth. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll take uh, communion together. Uh, Father, we, uh, you know, obviously hesitantly thank you for James. Just the, the incredible challenge that, that his words are, God. And we pray you help us, God, to, uh, to take them soberly, God. And we pray we allow your spirit to, to shine light into our hearts and our minds, God. To help us, God, to, to heed the warnings and understanding the dangers that, that come with wealth, God, and riches. And to make decisions, God, now to, to, to focus on your son and in the life to come. And to allow those, those two things to really change how we, how we use our wealth here and now, God. And we pray, God, you, that you help us, God. You know, week in and week out, God, we, we, we take the, the, the bread and the wine and we, we reflect on, on, a, on a life being given up for us, God. But, God, we, we, we pray that, that that sacrifice of a rich man becoming poor, God, that, that motivates us to, to follow that pattern of generosity, the pattern, to follow that pattern of sacrifice and, and radical giving, God, uh, as we live our lives for you, Father. We, we pray you help us, God, and you... Uh, open up our eyes to opportunities, God, that we can give and serve in and, and pour out our life just as you've done for us. Again, again, Father, we thank you and we love you, S.O., in Christ's name. Amen.